Welcome everyone to 51%'s Crypto Research Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. And on this episode, I had an extremely insightful conversation with Josh Stein, the CEO of Harbor. For those who don't know, Harbor is the security token platform and compliance protocol focused on tokenizing real-world assets. As many know, this market could be as high as $250 trillion in size. This is a timely episode as we recently had on Harbor's competitors. We had on Trevor Caverco, the CEO and founder of Polymath, and we had on Andrew Keys, which leads Consensus Capital, which includes Token Foundry, which has a key competitor to Harbor as well. This episode is the most bang for your buck on getting up to speed on security tokens. We cover everything from the need to tokenize real-world assets, the benefits, secondary trading, Harbor versus competitors, and more. Most importantly, we discuss how Harbor is not aiming to replace legacy institutions and the investment banking divisions of major banks like Goldman and J.P. Morgan Chase. Harbor CEO talks about how Harbor's aiming to be additive to these institutions, similar to how Salesforce was to business models today. Finally, we had a great discussion on unbundling legacy assets through tokenization. Our example focuses on the New York Giants and how unbundling ownership from massive $100 million chunks into smaller $50,000 tokens could unlock new rights, increase liquidity, and be a huge use case for security tokens. With that, here's my conversation with Harbor's CEO, Josh Stein. Today in the podcast, I have Josh Stein, the CEO of Harbor. Josh, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Tom. Of course. Thanks for being on the podcast. So, Josh, let's jump right into it. You know, how do you view a security token versus a utility token, um, and what are the differences? So um, that has been a uh, a very uh, academic and complex question out in the industry. I think from Harbor's point of view, the area in which we play are things that are unambiguous. So Harbor was founded to tokenize traditional private securities, a share in a private company, share in a private REIT, LP interest in a fund. Um, and so these are things that are unambiguously securities, and there isn't a question over whether it's a security or not. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, just for the listeners, I mean, you guys are focused on tokenizing real-world assets. So this would be something like a building or or an interest in a company, per se, versus something that has usage in a crypto network? Correct. So we are not tokenizing what you'd call protocol tokens or things that uh, work on decentralized applications. We are, when you say we're focused on tokenizing real-world assets, we are focused specifically on tokenizing private security interests. So if you think about tokenizing a building, I'll talk about that sometimes, but that's a shorthand way of saying tokenizing a private REIT or tokenizing an operating partnership or tokenizing an LLC that owns that building. Tokenizing the actual building would mean tokenizing the title or the deed to the property. And that's not what we do. The only people that can do that is the county recorder's office. Got it. That's interesting. So, you know, what traditional pain points does Harbor solve being a security token provider, um, you know, in the real world? Sure. Um, I think there's a couple of different things. We are a software platform for onboarding and vetting the investor that allows you to syndicate more widely because we can um, push a lot of people through more efficiently. Also, we are a blockchain protocol that controls how how these tokenized securities trade. And the technology unlocks liquidity, allows liquidity to occur that does not occur today because of the frictions involved. I think it's worth um, maybe talking about what is the liquidity in the private securities today and why. So if you have an LP interest in a fund, if you have a share in a private REIT and you want to get out, it's really, really hard. There are, I am confident, private wealth managers at J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs who um, today, having spent most of their time getting their clients into a number of highly liquid investments, now are trying to get them out. And it takes months, sometimes years. It takes a lot of elbow grease, phoning, faxing, emailing to a limited group of potential counterparties. When you finally do find a buyer, it takes a couple of weeks of lawyers red, sending red line documents back and forth, and you'll pay 20 to 40 grand for the privilege. And then finally, and most importantly, you take a big hit on the valuation, what's called the illiquidity discount. And so academic literature uses a figure of 30% a lot. Um, When I talk to people in the space, I commonly hear a figure of 40 to 60%. 
So if you have, let's say you invested a couple hundred thousand dollars into a private equity fund, you now have a, a private LP interest and you need to get out. You've had a change in business circumstance, a change in investment philosophy, a change in personal circumstance. If you want to get out, you're really in a tough spot. At the end of the day, like I said, it's months or years. It is you're paying 10, 20, 40 grand for the pleasure. And then you're taking a big hit on the valuation. So if you had invested 200,000, you're lucky if you're walking away with 100,000 at the end of the day. Got it. That's really interesting. And, you know, I know a lot of numbers get thrown around on the size of the security token market. You know, a lot of people like to say 250 trillion. I'm just wondering what you think the number is. And then you know, building on that, if if the illiquidity premium goes away and let's say it's, you know, you get rid of that 50% haircut, you know, do you think that market technically gets, you know, cut in half to say 125 trillion? So I'd look at it a little bit differently. One is, is tokenization will reduce the illiquidity discount, but it's not going to eliminate it. At the end of the day, if you want the liquidity of the public markets, you need to go public. And it's worth taking a step back and and asking what is it that prevents liquidity and why is it that people raise money privately even though there isn't liquidity and i'm going to um sound a little sales sticky for a moment but if you go back several hundred years modern capitalism got kicked out kicked off by a bunch of dutchmen and a few englishmen meeting at the corners of broad and wall who combined two magical ingredients fractional ownership and liquidity or secondary trading they were trading these things called stocks and these newfangled things called joint stock companies. And literally a few dozen folks uh, kickstarted modern capitalism that way. Today, private capital formation exceeds public capital formation, not just in the US, but around the world. And the reason why is it's a lot faster and easier to raise money privately. So when you tokenize, you, you reduce that illiquidity discount. You're not going to end up in a world in which that illiquidity discount goes from 40 to 50% to zero. But going back to our months to years, 10, 20, 40 grand to repaper and, um, and 40, 60% illiquidity discount, I think you end up in a world in which you're mostly looking at days to maybe a couple weeks rather than um, spending weeks and uh, 10, 20, 40 grand repapering it. You're doing it in 15 minutes and paying $100 or $200 on an exchange fee. And instead of a 40 to 60% hit on the illiquidity, discount, maybe it's 20 or 25%. So all of these things are far better than what you have today, but they are not um, the same as the public markets. This year, you're not going to have that same level of liquidity ever, unless you go public. Got it. That's interesting. That's a great overview. And, you know, before we get into, you know, Harbor's unique tokenization approach, you know, let's go into, you know, the target markets for you guys and what you've seen focused on. I know you're initially focused on commercial real estate, you know, why is this so interesting to you guys and why is it a huge area of your focus? So we're not focused on commercial real estate. Commercial real estate is focused on us. I'd say we only deal with inbound leads right now. And I'd say it's overwhelmingly maybe 70 to 80% of the quality leads are commercial real estate. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is it's an absolutely enormous asset class. I hear all sorts of various figures, but somewhere between 13 and $17 trillion just in the US, privately held commercial real estate. In terms of um, the value that you bring, remember, tokenization is unlocking liquidity. So liquidity is especially valuable where folks um, consume a lot of capital, they're sensitive to the cost of capital, and they're relatively indifferent to the identity of the investor. And what that means is you have the maximum number of people that you can bring in and you're going to get the maximum liquidity possible under the market conditions because you're taking anybody that comes. If instead you distinguish that, say, from high-tech startups in Silicon Valley, those folks are not capital constrained. They're not sensitive to the cost of capital. And so they're not going to allow people to freely trade in and out of their cap table. Tokenizing their shares adds some value, but it does not add the level of value that um, tokenization brings to those industries that, like I said, consume a lot of capital, sensitive to the cost of capital, and relatively indifferent to the identity of the investor. Do you think that the multiples for these assets could increase if they're tokenized? Or, you know, based on your comments just now, do you think that that's not really the focus here and the real focus is bringing transparency to the space and, you know, unlocking a lot of liquidity? I think an asset owner can and should get a little bit better price. 
um, from two different effects. One is, is you can syndicate more widely. If you syndicate more widely, you bring the check size down, you have more potential bidders. That should give you a better price for the asset. Separately, if you reduce the illiquidity discount, a portion of that reduction should get priced in at the beginning in what people are willing to pay. And that should also give you a better price for the asset. It's not the ICO craze 2x, 10x of, of what it would otherwise be worth to a single buyer, but it is a bump. And let me give an example. So we talk a lot with folks that are interested in raising capital on a building. Let's say you have a trophy asset. It's worth, I'll make up some numbers, $300 million. And you need to raise $100 million on that asset. Today, you have three choices as that owner, and they're all bad choices. You can sell that trophy property, but you don't want to do that. You're a real estate developer. You love owning beautiful properties. You can raise debt on the asset, but you may be as levered up as you want to be, particularly at this point in the economic cycle. You can bring on a minority investor, but not many people can cut a check for $100 million because there's very few bidders. You get squeezed on valuation. Even worse from the asset owner's point of view, you get all these onerous control provisions that get negotiated, which means you can't run the asset the way you want to. Using something like Harbor now offers a fourth option. Take that $100 million, throw it in a private REIT. Private REIT is a maximum of 2,000 shareholders. $100 million divided by 2,000 is 50,000. In other words, the check size, the um, cost per tokenized share is $50,000. Now, suddenly, at a $50,000 check size level, there's far more potential bidders. And because there's liquidity on the back end, you also separately should get a better price. If you factor those things together, an asset owner legitimately, this is just a finger to the wind, ought to get a 5 to 15% bump in the valuation they would get if they sold that $100 million interest just to a single buyer. That would be fair. But I think sort of the sense out in the crypto industry that somehow you can just start yelling token, 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 and you get 2x the valuation I don't think that's realistic, and it's certainly not something we would want to be associated with. Got it. But I mean, on the flip side of that, I mean, you don't really need to bring 2x, 5x, 10x returns because you're not starting at zero. You're bringing assets with massive value already to the space. So instead of going from you know, zero to a billion on valuation, you're, going, you're just tokenizing the billion that already exists, right? Correct. What you're doing is you're raising private capital but you're doing it in a more syndicated way and using a technology that unlocks or allows for liquidity in a way that's not possible today because in a paper world, there's just too much friction. That has value. That should allow you to um, tap more investors more easily around the world. Um, that gets you a better price and that gets you a, a wider, more passive, uh, diversified investor base. That's good for the asset owner. Got it. So just summing this up, I mean, in general, the benefits for real asset owners securitizing, they can get somewhere in the range of a 15% better price, um, access to more investors, more liquidity. And I know we didn't get it, we'll go into this, but probably a bunch of cost savings just on the legal side and, and getting the sale done, right? I do think that there are significant savings to be had in the administrative hassle of raising private capital, which today is largely in paper and very inefficient. And there are cost savings to be had in secondary liquidity, which today almost never happens. Um, and so you're getting a less of a illiquidity discount, less of a hit on the valuation. And the 10, 20, 40 grand you spent on wearing the transaction now gets radically reduced to 100 or 200 bucks maybe um, at the most when you go to trade that LP interest or that share later. So there is cost reduction, but it's not cost reduction um, in the same way that's very distinct from getting a better valuation on the asset because you have a different profile of who's investing. Got it. So just switching gears, Josh, let's go into the Harbor's approach um, and how Harbor tokenizes assets. I guess let's start with the R token standard. Uh, what is it? It's a standard we published in our white paper. It basically sets out at a high level of generality the architecture of how we issue security tokens and how they're structured. There are a number of different components. I'm going to completely oversimplify technically. Essentially, Harbor is the all-knowing trade compliance oracle. Every time that Harvard issue Harbor issued tokenized security goes to trade, it pings Harbor. Harbor checks all the compliance requirements, what we call the who, what, where of compliance, who the buyer and seller are, what the trade is, where it occurs. 
If all those check out, trade goes through, no one knows Harbor was ever involved. If any of those don't check out, we throw an error and the trade never happens. You'll throw out an error too many investors, error too few investors, error doesn't follow the holding period requirements, error seller is a um, control officer or affiliate of the issuer and has special restrictions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in essence, Harbor centralizes the compliance aspect. Um, you know, this is very different from, you know, a lot of your competitors out there. I mean, what does this solve for issuers? I mean, is this better for regulations? It seems like it is, or is this just easier to control who owns, you know, what securities? So we do have a different model. Some folks are what I would say fully decentralized where all these different KYCML checks, people who maintain your whitelist of acceptable investors, people who um, track real world identity, if at all, people who um, encode all these rules, they're all different folks and you trust them because they post a bond of some coin and uh, you trust them because if they don't perform, you'll burn down that bond of coins. It's very much a game theoretic model to drive up the value of the token that was issued. Um, I think in the very long run that that is a model that might actually work. I think in the short run it's difficult because of trust factors and because of way that compliance works today, it's difficult to do. We think that the compliance layer needs to be centralized and everything else is decentralized. So Harbor centralizes compliance, and I'll explain why in a moment, around the, the capitalization table or who the real world, real world investors are. We are decentralized as everything else. The tokens we issue are ERC-20 standard tokens that are plug and play with wallets, qualified custodians, and exchanges and other services that take ERC-20 standard tokens. Um, all sorts of really interesting uh, financial engineering products like derivatives using the DYDX protocol, loans using the Dharma protocol, uh, essentially margin loans in a stable coin, the MakerDAO project. So because these are ERC-20 standard tokens, it's plug and play with everything else. The reason the compliance layer we think needs to be centralized is that you need to track real world identity against the blockchain in real time, or you cannot control what you need to control for. Any solution that does not do that is by definition, we think gonna be non-compliant. If you don't know the real world identity that corresponds to these wallet addresses, how can you tell if you have too many investors or too few? How can you tell if, for example, there's a limit on um, foreign ownership or limit on a single person's uh, concentration of ownership? All you see are walled addresses. It could be one person has 10 of those walled addresses you wouldn't know. And um, another example would be tax withholding and tax statements on dividends and distributions. You need to know the real world identity in order to be able to do that. So essentially we manage that cap table we are a centralized compliance solution, and that allows these tokenized securities to trade in multiple venues simultaneously. It can trade an exchange in Singapore at the same time as trading in an exchange in San Francisco, at the same time as trading over the counter or peer-to-peer around the world. And we're constantly keeping track of that who, what, where of compliance, minimum and maximum investor numbers, holding periods, uh, limits on foreign ownership, limits on concentration of particular holders, all those all those different complex rules, we track those across multiple venues. If you don't centralize compliance, you can't let it trade multiple places and you can't track real-world identity in real time. Got it. So just to, you know, square you guys up for the listeners, I mean, you know, on one end you have Polymath, you know, who we, did, who we interviewed, and, you know, that's a more, I guess you would describe it as a more scalable platform where anybody can just you know, go online and create their own token. And then you guys are basically at the other end of the spectrum where you want everything to be fully compliant and you guys want to make sure who the token holders are and where these are being transferred and, and who owns what. Um, is that basically like a good summation? Yes, but I wouldn't say the difference is scalability. I would say the difference is the type of solution. So we are an end-to-end platform uh, to control the entire life cycle of that formation of private capital, the initial issuance of the security token, and the trading throughout its secondary life to ensure that it's always compliant according to the securities laws and the particular contractual requirements of that issuer. There are something like a polymath. They've got that more decentralized game theoretic model. You can 
you can create your own security tokens, you can plug and play a whole bunch of different providers. There are certainly advantages to that model. And so it's, it depends on what people are looking for and what they're trying to do. We are very much focused on the institutional grade segment of the market. We talk about the three Qs, quality owner operators, quality assets or funds that are quality investments for investors. So we do heavy due diligence on everyone that we deal with. Um, precisely because we're so sensitive to who we're associated with. So, you know, is it fair to think that you guys would be dealing with larger entities that are looking to securitize their assets, whereas your competitors may be looking to deal with, you know, smaller entities? You know, I kind of think when I think Harbor, I think about, you know, securitizing a major portion of real estate in, in a state. When I think other platforms, I think of maybe securitizing art or, or something that's smaller. Is that a good way to think about this or, or no? No, I don't think it's necessarily the size or the, the amount of the raise or the size of the, the value of the asset to be tokenized. I think of it more in terms of a difference of who are your target clients. Are they tech-savvy, um, crypto-native firms that really want to have a lot of control, do their own programming, sort of assemble things themselves? Or are you more of a traditional financial institution, traditional asset owner who wants to an end-to-end technology solution because what you're focused on is being able to syndicate more widely, raise capital from a broader group of investors around the world and provide them liquidity on the back end, all while ensuring compliance with a trusted partner that's accountable. That's just a different model. It's the difference between kind of do-it-yourself construction and hiring a general contractor. So just going into the secondary markets for these tokens, I mean, you know, where do you envision most of these tokens will trade? Um, You know, does it exactly matter? You know, do you think that a more centralized type entity like T0 is the place for these tokens to trade? Or do you think something decentralized like a 0x relayer makes more sense? We're not fans of the centralized solutions for a number of reasons. If it's a centralized solution, um, then why are using the blockchain everything's happening off the blockchain you have you no longer have a single source of truth either all the trading happens in that one centralized venue in which case you don't need the blockchain it's just one centralized venue or trading is happening that centralized venue and it's happening in other places whether that's peer-to-peer over the counter or whether it's other exchanges the problem then there is that you don't have one single source of truth the whole point of distributed ledger technology is everyone's operating off the same ledger that doesn't work in a fully centralized venue. There are various degrees of centralization. So some things are fully decentralized, like a lot of the exchanges springing up on the ZeroX protocol, and we're big fans of ZeroX. Others are what I would call semi-centralized, so they will have order books that are centralized off-chain, but then the trade execution happens on-chain. Others will even do trade initial trade execution off-chain. They'll batch up a whole bunch of transactions, and then um, batch them onto the main chain. Any of those models work well with Harbor and we think work fine. Um, but we do think that if you're not writing to the main blockchain, then why are you using blockchain technology? That makes a lot of sense. And I totally agree with you on 0x. Um, for full disclosure, I own 0x tokens and I just did a deep dive and valuation model on them a few weeks ago and was wondering. You know, since Zero X is completely decentralized, who pings Harbor when our our tokens or, or Harbor-based security tokens are traded? I mean, would it be the relayer, or would it be automatic, or would no one even know? It's automatic. When we create that smart contract and issue those tokenized securities, there's some programming in the contract that every time that token goes to trade, every time it calls the functions transfer or transfer from, it pings Harbor. I'm oversimplifying here. It pings Harbor. We check who the buyer and seller are, what the trade is, and where it occurs. Okay, and you know this is probably a good problem to have in the future. But you know, do you need a thousand employees to be checking over all of these pings to make sure everything's legitimate, or is this you know mostly an automated you know situation? It's an automated solution. Uh, I certainly hope we don't need a thousand employees. We do have a robust compliance team. Uh, and we take a number of robust measures to make sure everything's correct. So I'll give you one an example, which is uh, our generic smart contracts get audited by two different outside firms for the security and validity of those smart contracts. And then when we do a specific smart contract to do a specific token issuance, we get it audited yet again. That makes a lot of sense. So do you guys share any details on the number of tokens or companies you, you may have worked with thus far or the number of tokens you guys have issued or 
is it basically, you know, everything is stopped until we get clear regulation? So we don't need clear regulation. Uh, Harbor doesn't need any changes to the regulations to do what it's doing. In fact, Harbor Solution is pro-regulatory. We take these rules that are often honored only in the breach today in the world of paper private securities. We now automate that compliance um, and that compliance gets enforced ex ante before the trade ever happens. So uh, we don't see any ambiguities in the rules that we need that are problematic or any changes in the rules that we need. Our job is to enforce those rules so that issuers can limit, can lift the prohibition on the transfer of those private securities and allow buyer and seller to find each other and trade freely to the limit of the required rules and the prevailing market conditions. So, you know, specifically, what are these rules that Harbor is taking advantage of um, to make this all happen? Because it seems to me like a lot of your competitors have basically gone quiet or slowed down, kind of waiting for regulation to come out to give them the green light before they, you know, ramp up marketing again. But you guys seem that you don't need to wait for that. Well, because I think it's we're, we need to distinguish between protocol tokens or those tokens that do not want to be securities, where there's ambiguity, right? That they're not stocks, they're not bonds, they're not partnership interests. They're protocol tokens, and it's unclear whether they're a security or not under the Howey test. That's not where Harbor's playing. And I get that those folks need more regulatory clarity, and God bless them, I hope they get it. But that's not where Harbor is. Everything we're dealing with is a stock, a bond, an LP interest, a member interest in LLC. These are things that are unambiguously securities. And so we know what rule sets apply, and our job is just to make sure that we encode and algorithmically enforce them. Just one last bit on on the regulation side. I mean, since this is all, since Harbor's based on the ERC twenty token standard, I mean, is there a risk that you know if anything happens to Ethereum regulation wise, then Harbor could be affected? You know, I know this affects basically every project built on Ethereum. I think there would be a momentary interruption, and then we pick back up. Most of the work that we do is in the software platform that onboards and vets investors so that we can correlate real-world identity to blockchain identity. And it's working out all these algorithms. That's probably 80, 85%, maybe even 90% of the work we do. Less of it is in the programming of the particular smart contracts, although that is very technical and very significant. It is not the bulk of the work that we do. It's probably the most complex and hardest work, but it's not the bulk of the work that we do. So we could um, relatively easily pick up and support other blockchain technologies. And I expect that it won't just be one blockchain to rule them all. There will be different blockchains with different trade-offs in terms of throughput and security and scalability that succeed in different securities with different trading characteristics will use different blockchain technologies. And, you know, just for the focus of our audience, I wanted to hit a bit on, you know, whether or not Harbor would be disruptive to traditional banking entities. And I know you've described Harbor more as a platform than as a disruptor. I'm just wondering, you know, what happens to investment banking in a world where Harbor is insanely successful? Does it go away? Is it additive? You know, what's the effect there? It's additive in the same way in which Salesforce.com was additive to salespeople. So Harbor, so we think that this um, platform plus protocol technology, this tokenization, will take private capital formation and increase it. It'll get even bigger than it is today. And that secondary liquidity in private capital, which today is almost zero, will actually become a pretty big market. And so we think that there's a much bigger pie for everyone, the investment bankers, the traders, the exchanges, and everyone else. Harbor, just our objective is to be ubiquitous platform on which uh, investment banks, broker dealers, and others um, can bring their deals and that we can be the premier technology provider. Uh, again, it's the salesforce.com analogy. No one ever said, don't use Salesforce. It competes with our salespeople. Everyone says, let's use Salesforce because it's the best CRM technology out there. So, you know, do you envision like Goldman Sachs having Harbor's technology built in to streamline the capital raising process? Or is this something that would replace the salespeople? I'm just wondering exactly, you know, who's using it and where it fits into the existing model. So what we would be doing is automating a lot of the administrative back office in the initial capital formation. So it's this really high-speed software platform that allows investors to come in, get KYC ML, get accredited or, or verified as a qualified purchaser, and then um, go through, see, view, and sign the docs, and then go through payment flows and do it all very quickly. 
Today, that's all an incredibly painful paper process that is costly and labor intensive and causes a lot of delays. So what we would end up doing is not, we're not replacing investment bankers. What we're doing is automating a lot of the stuff that they hate to do today so that they can do what they do best, which is focus on relationships, focus on the analysis and structuring of investments and focus on selling those investments on, raising that capital, placing those investments. And then we are a blockchain protocol that ties into the platform that allows for liquidity that doesn't exist today, which increases the value. So you'll have more issuers doing more things, investors uh, investing more upfront and then trading more on the back end. And so we don't see ourselves as replacing anyone in the financial industry. We uh, see ourselves as enabling a lot more efficiency and enabling things that can't be done today. Harbor allows a lot of assets to be securitized that weren't in the past. I'm just wondering what this unlocks for banks that they haven't been able to push in the past for their clients. So banks today do a lot of structuring and selling of real estate investments. And there's a number of investment banks that have strong real estate banking practices. Think a Goldman, um, a Blackstone. There are others, uh, a Mollus. Um, and there are others that are their specialized boutiques that focus on nothing but real estate. There's a ton of private equity shops. There's all sorts of folks out there. And just switching gears a little bit, Josh, your CTO, Bob Ramika, he put out a great post on the security token stack that I don't think anybody's really done this much work on. It's excellent. Basically, you have Ethereum at the bottom, you know, then Harbor, and then new protocols like Xeroax for trading and, and AirSwap and the Ocean. You know, how closely do you work with say, other entities higher up in the token stack? So we talk to lots of them. Uh, we talk to them all the time. So in the protocol layers, we talk to them about what we need or see in the protocol. We talk to them about ways in which we can support the exchanges that are springing up on that protocol. We talk to a number of exchanges all the time. We have partnership with Open Finance. We're in talks with a number of other exchanges, both in the U.S. and abroad, to create preferred relationships that will um, provide good venues for the issuers and their investors, and that will provide an enhanced investor experience. We are in talks with qualified custodians and wallet providers. We talk to the folks who provide some of the other really interesting technologies like Dharma and MakerDAO that allow you to do really interesting things in a tokenized world. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, Josh, is there anything that I missed that you want to talk about that um, you think is interesting in the space? Yeah, I think, like we talked a little bit about some of the themes that Harbor's always emphasizing. One of it is lock up the capital, not the investor, the way in which tokenization allows the asset owner or the fund owner to get permanent capital and the LPs or investors to get liquidity from each other. I think another thing that we maybe could talk a little bit more about is the theme of unbundling and rebundling. So we talked a little about unbundling, syndicating more widely, breaking these investments down into smaller pieces, a smaller check size that allows access to um, other investors who otherwise couldn't get access. I think what becomes interesting is rebundling in other things like property rights not normally associated with the security. So I think an interesting example is professional sports. And I've talked to a number of professional sports teams that are interested in this. Uh, a owner of a professional sports team has a trophy asset, just like a real estate owner of a trophy asset. And today they have the same three bad choices. You can, if you can sell that professional sports team, but you don't want to do that. You love owning the professional sports team. You can raise debt on it, but you don't want to do that because you don't want it, you're as levered up as you want to be. You can sell large chunks to other minority investors, but again, fewer bidders means you don't get as good a price. And when people are cutting large checks in the hundreds of millions of dollars, they want to have input and you don't want their input into who the coaching staff should be. You want their capital. I think what becomes really interesting is to do the same thing. So the same way in which in real estate, take a minority interest, syndicate it widely, allow them to get liquidity from each other. You can do the same thing for a professional sports team. And I think what's really interesting is the major professional sports teams, the NBA, the NFL, and others, those teams were bought for a hundred or a couple hundred million, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And now they're worth billions of dollars. And there's literally almost no one who can cut a check for the whole thing or even a major piece of it. But what becomes interesting is, is, if you took a $100 million slice of a professional sports team, like what's your favorite NFL team? Probably have to go with the Giants. The Giants. Okay, I'm going to make up a bunch of numbers. The Giants are probably worth a lot more than a billion, but let's say they're just worth a billion, so we're using round numbers. And let's say we're going to sell off 10% of $100 million. If you're using a corporate structure, a C-Corp, 
each class of equity can have up to 2,000 shareholders. So that 100 million can be broken into, unbundled into 2,000 pieces or a $50,000 check size. How many people around the New York area you think would want to own a real equity piece of the Giants if they could get in at 50,000? Oh God, you'd turn regular fans into Uber fans overnight. Yes. So my guess is, is you get a premium for that. Instead of this 10% slice of the team that's worth 100 million to a single buyer is worth 150 million when it's unbundled into smaller pieces, maybe even 200 million. And then what becomes interesting, so now unbundled into smaller pieces, we've gotten a premium. Now let's bundle in rights not normally associated with a security. Everybody who buys a share in the Giants gets first dibs on the best season tickets. They get to meet the players after the home games three or four times a year. There's, they get a special day to meet the players during spring training. They get, there's an annual owners meeting where uh, they talk strategy and you meet the coaching staff. You start bundling in these other rights, that value just goes up and up and up. So the team owners get to get a premium price on that um, ownership interest. I think a very high premium price. The fans get into something they couldn't otherwise. They get a lot of, they get economic value and they get a lot of psychic value. And you drive a lot of fan engagement. And so I think it's a win-win-win for everybody involved. No, that's huge. That's super interesting. And just to walk through the process, you would have to have the teams go through Harbor to basically tokenize their assets. But as for the individuals that would aim to purchase the $50,000 stake, they would have to go through Harbor um, for their identity. So you guys would request something, I'm assuming like a driver's license to get them on a KYC list? Yes. So why don't I run you through the life cycle of what we do? All right. So the Giants are selling off 10%. They create a great marketing website, www.giantsfanopportunity.com. It's got some information on it. Are you interested? Click here. That takes you to Harbor. The investor then sets up a Harbor account. It's um, very streamlined. It's like setting up a banker brokerage account, but very streamlined. Name, address, social, date of birth, couple of their pieces of info. They upload a copy of their driver's license. We can KYC them two to three minutes while they're staring at their browser. After that, they go through an accredited investor flow. They upload the documents that prove their assets or income, or they give us the name and email address of a proper third party that can attest to their accredited status. That's a broker, registered investment advisor, accountant, or licensed lawyer. It takes us one to three days to accredit an individual offline, two to 12 days to accredit an entity because you have to peel back the layers of the beneficial owners. You KYC and accredit them. After that's done, the investor comes back to the Harbor website and now they go to the offering page. Note that if they've already been through Harbor once, they don't need to go through that again. They're going straight to the offering page. Now you would have the investment documents. You'd have a private placement memorandum. You'd have some due diligence items, a marketing deck, whatever else the Giants want to display. The investors sign the documents right there. After they sign the documents, they go through a purchase order flow. It's like the Amazon.com of buying tokenized securities. In this case, let's just assume it's 50,000 each. You want two, that's $100,000. If you want to pay in um, dollars, you get wiring instructions and do an escrow account. If you want to pay in crypto, you can pay in Bitcoin or Ether. We provide a cryptocurrency conversion service. After that's done, um, you go through and uh, you break escrow once you hit your minimum fundraising level, your contingency. Up till now, this is just a traditional private capital raise. It's being done on a software as a service platform. That is very high speed, low drag, where you can really put a lot of people through efficiently at low cost. Now comes the crypto part. We create a wallet with a qualified custodian. That's important from both a a legal standpoint and a security standpoint. We create the smart contract to create the security tokens. We get that specific smart contract audited. We bring in a big four accounting firm to audit the um, financial flows, documents, KYC, ML determinations. We require a 90-day worldwide lockup so we can do all these checks. We engage in an education campaign for the investor, telling them the restrictions um, that there are on their trading, what the rules are, and where they can trade it. In their harbor.com account, they'll see that they own the two security tokens. They'll have links to the investor portal or whatever information is out there for the giants. They'll have links to the over-the-counter desks or the exchanges where this might trade. And then on day 91, they're off to the races and they're, or after a year, whatever the issuer imposes and the securities rules require, they're off to the races and they're out there trading if they choose to. 
super interesting. You know, I, I'm not going to forward this podcast to FanDuel because we might put them out of business. You know, just betting on games. We're now betting on the actual value of teams. But you know, in this scenario, you would be able to track the value of a sports team every minute, right? Right, not just when they're sold. Yeah, I don't think it's going to trade every minute. So fifty thousand dollars a token. Remember, it's not going to trade like the public markets. So that's going to. I think it's going to trade more like micro cap stocks. The old Nasdaq pink sheets, but better. Um, but it's certainly going to be far more liquid than it, than it otherwise would be in a paper world. I think what becomes interesting is you can do things like go long the Giants, short the Jets. You can pledge that security to get a loan on it using MakerDAO or some of the other um, some of the other protocols out there. In a digitized, tokenized world, you can do a lot of things that today would just be too costly and have too much friction. Got it. So, I mean, in theory that when these teams are recruiting players, they could, you know, give them, I, and I don't know if they would, but they could start to give them ownership in the teams themselves. Yes, they, I, certainly they could. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how that would tie in with the salary cap requirements. The other thing to note, too, is I was using the example of a C-Corp and a class of equity. You would need to restructure the ownership agreements in the major leagues. Right now, um, the leagues have approval authority over anyone coming in to buy into a team. So obviously there's no liquidity there. You'd have to structure things a little bit differently. If I was the leagues, I would not start with an NBA team or an NFL team. I would start with a AAA ball club. I would start with um, a WNBA team, which has a much lower valuation where the capital is really worthwhile. So if you think of a WNBA team that might be worth, say, 20 million, if you saw Ten percent of that, you get a premium. Say you get three million instead of two million. That's capital that really makes a difference to that team. I mean, the WNBA um, really is trying to get more visibility and expand. That's working capital that's really valuable to them. And then driving fan engagement. I mean, at a three million valuation, if you do it as a P, as a class of equity shares, maximum of two thousand. That's a fifteen hundred dollar per tokenized security price point. How many parents that have a daughter that's a really big basketball player would buy them a piece of their favorite WNBA team, allow them to go meet their favorite WNBA players and feel like an owner? That's really valuable in raising the capital. It's really valuable in driving that fan engagement, which is exactly what those teams need to do. So I think if I was the leagues, I would not take a billion or $3 billion asset and experiment first there. I would take these other assets where the um, upside is so much higher because they could really use the capital and they could really use the fan engagement um, and where the risks to the major leagues are a little bit lower in terms of if things don't work out for whatever reason, risk to the major assets are lower. At the end of the day, Harbor doesn't have to be this decentralized crypto nirvana to enable these new things like you know equity and a sports ownership team. So we're focused on how the technology can deliver value to the asset owners, to the issuers, and to the investors. That's what we're focused on. Now, I think decentralization makes sense in most aspects. We're, like I said, we're big fans of Zero X. With the decentralized blockchain and only a decentralized public blockchain, can you trade 24-7, 365 around the globe with near instantaneous settlement and no counterparty risk and potentially one worldwide pool of liquidity? The blockchain and only the blockchain gives you that. So I think decentralization is, decentralization is very valuable. It's a question of what do you decentralize and what don't you? It doesn't make sense to blindly try and decentralize everything because in the world of tokenized securities, not everything can be decentralized. If you think about it, the investment itself is always centralized. You are giving over your money to an asset owner that's managing an asset out in the real world. The giants are centralized. That building is centralized. That private equity fund is centralized. And you're never going to get away from that. I think coming at it from a different angle, a way to think about it is, is how is trust, which is the flip side of decentralization, how is trust different and the same in the world of tokenized securities compared to today? The trust you need to have in the person or the company in which you're investing is the same. The fact that it's tokenized doesn't change the fact that you need to understand the investment you're making. If it's a bad investment and you tokenize it, you now have a more liquid bad investment. So you need to have the same due diligence and level of trust in who you're investing in. Your evidence of ownership is much better. You don't have the double counting problem. You know that you own what you own and you can see the cap table laid out on this shared ledger. It's not a piece of paper locked in the desk drawer of an attorney, a continent away, whose language you don't speak, 
or being kept on an Excel spreadsheet by a law firm somewhere where it's always screwed up. Finally, what's really revolutionary is the decentralized trading, the liquidity. That is what becomes truly revolutionary where, you, again, you can trade 24-7, 365 around the globe with near instantaneous settlement, no counterparty risk, and potentially one worldwide book of liquidity. That only happens in a decentralized world. Got it. That's super interesting. And just closing this loop before I go on to my final questions, you know, back to the back to our example on the Giants, you know, why can't that be done today um, or can it be done today and it's just too costly or it's infeasible? You could um, sell off the equity. What you couldn't do is get liquidity on the back end. And what you also could not easily do is layer in all these other rights um, because we are keeping this electronic cap table in real time, so you always know exactly who owns what. So it just it simply becomes, in a paper world, it becomes difficult. I think the best analogy when you think of tokenized securities is, and the transition from private securities today, which exists on paper, to a tokenized version, is the same transition from snail mail to email. Both are written communications done in English, it used to be I typed out a letter, I clicked print, I put it in an envelope, I paid 50 cents, I waited three days, and that seemed just fine. And I distinctly remember the time in the mid-90s where I started clicking send. The content of the written communication is the same. I'm saying the same things. But because I put in this digitized wrapper, it's now faster, cheaper, and easier by orders of magnitude to send that communication. And I can do things with it, like archiving it and searching it and reforwarding it and doing all sorts of other things that you can't do in a paper world. Similarly, when you go from a paper private security to a digitized or tokenized private security, it, um, it, the content of the security interest is the same. The investment is the same. But now it's faster, cheaper, and e easier to issue those securities. It's faster, cheaper, and easier by orders of magnitude to trade those securities. And you can now start doing wonderful things using other protocols like DYDX and MakerDAO in ways that you just couldn't do realistically with a paper security. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, we didn't even really talk about the derivatives that could be built on things like equity, equity and, and the giants per se, but that's, that's super interesting. And just switching gears to Harbor, um, one of my last questions for you, Josh, is, you know, by working with Harbor, people looking to issue securities on their security tokens on their assets are somewhat, it seems, locked into the platform itself. I mean, you know, how do you go to somebody looking to securitize an asset and say, hey, you know, in 10 years, we're still going to be here or in five years, we're still going to be here? Um, you know, how do you respond to those comments? Because they are relying on you for this compliance aspect, which is central to the model. They are, but they can easily switch providers. So... Remember, Ethereum is a distributed ledger. It's just a giant Excel spreadsheet in the sky that you can algorithmically control who can write new records to it, new new rows. It is, so you always know who owns what. If Harbor goes away or you decide you want to go to another vendor, you simply freeze trading. Or if Harbor goes away, we, um, we fail closed. Trading won't happen if Harbor's not actively facilitating it. And then so what you do is you just go to a new provider and you reissue new security tokens. Or if you're using Ethereum, you want to go to a different blockchain with Harbor, we freeze trading on Ethereum, and we issue new security tokens on EOS or some of the other blockchain technologies. Um, and similarly, we, we counsel our issuers that they should have a fallback in their investment docs that they can revert to paper if they ever have to. So for whatever reason, if there's a failure generally in blockchain technology or an adverse regulatory change, you just issue all your investors a piece of paper, and they still have the investment that they had before. They don't have the unlocked liquidity from the technology, but they still have the investment they had before. So people aren't, I think there's a misnomer that somehow you issue a security token, that thing has to live forever. It's just an Excel spreadsheet keeping track of who owns what. So basically, you guys are built on Ethereum today, but you're agnostic in the sense that if something happens, you take the cap table, put it on a new blockchain, and you're basically good to go. I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into that, and there would be serious issues, but it seems like the infrastructure is in place to do that. That's correct. I think long-term, we think a variety of blockchains will be successful. We think Ethereum is going to be successful in the long term, but we think others will as well. And we want to support multiple blockchains. Short term, we're focused solely on Ethereum 
because it has the biggest ecosystem of developers and the biggest ecosystem of other important players. On Ethereum and only on Ethereum, to my knowledge, are there qualified custodians, which is a big deal. Technologies like DYDX, Dharma, MakerDAO, SET, Zero X. These are things that are focused on Ethereum. So um, we, like I said, we centralize compliance, but we're plug and play with everything else. And so we are dependent on that ecosystem because it delivers just so much value and capabilities. Um, and so that's why we're focused on Ethereum at first. Josh, you know, what are you seeing today that is different from where you were a year ago? Um, you know, are you surprised at the level of progress or are you more excited about security tokens in 2019? Or, you know, what are you seeing that's new now that that's surprising you? I think what's surprising me is how quickly the industry is moving and the players are advancing and maturing. So compared to a year ago, who knew about um, in-depth 0x, DYDX, Dharma, uh, Blockboard, which is a great app written on top of Dharma, uh, MakerDAO, uh, Basis, just all these great technologies and companies that are out there, the new Gemini uh, crypto dollar, the true USD crypto dollar, all these different things add a ton of BitGo with a qualified custodian status. All these different players and technologies really extend the value of what we're doing, and it's all coming on so quick. And I know for those of us in the industry, sometimes it feels, people get anxious and it feels like, oh, if it can only go faster. But in the highly regulated world of high finance, um, things are progressing at remarkable speed. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So all in all, Josh, uh, bankers, analysts, funds on Wall Street who are traditional players, you know, they shouldn't be scared of you guys. They should be answering your call. Yes, actually, they should be calling us. Um, yeah, we want to be a platform for investment bankers. We want to help them raise more private capital more easily from a broader base of investors. We want to help them create a uh, secondary market for private securities that never existed before. Um, and we just want to be that trusted partner and platform to all of them. My last question for you, if everybody in crypto is listening, you know, what's one thing you'd want to tell them or educate them on? I think that what um, people need to start with the value proposition and then figure out how the technology slots in. In the world of investments, the most important part is the investment product. And then the technology unlocks all sorts of possibilities. But it's like saying, because I use email, I don't need to worry about the quality of my writing. The quality of your thought and writing is important in paper or in email. The email technology allows all sorts of wonderful things in terms of how you organize companies, how you organize communication, but it doesn't substitute for the quality of that communication. And I think people need to focus on both. We need to focus on the technology, the blockchain technology and all the wonderful things it can enable. But we also need to focus on the quality of who we're partnering with and the investments we're bringing to market. That makes a lot of sense. And Josh, before I let you go, where could people learn more about Harbor or more about you? Harbor.com. Well, Josh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one and tweet out this episode to share it with your network.